This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. Dekawat Playhouse Episode 29 It's time for Dekawat Playhouse. Let us return to the 1980s and a small liberal arts college in western Pennsylvania. Here, without the distractions of alcohol or intervisitation, students had nothing else to do but amuse themselves with strange radio shows and college bands. Announcer Bot, what have you retrieved from the vaults of history tonight? Classic Radio Theater. War of the Worlds. Grove City's Hotspot at 89.5. WSAJ-FM, Grove City, Pennsylvania. They've been watching. They've been waiting. And on April 26, 1987, they will arrive. Tune in April 26 at 5.30 p.m. The Classic Radio Theater adaptation of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Only on 89.5 FM WSAJ. Join us for the last hour on Earth. Welcome to WSAJ Classic Radio Theater. This evening we present a, spe- a special adaptation for the Grove City area, War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite compliance, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their domain over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mysteries of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 87th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. It was near the end of April, business was better, the Contra Square was finally over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, April 26, the Crossley service estimated that 3,200 people were listening in on radios. Today's weather is mostly sunny and mild with temperatures in the mid-60s. For tonight, fair with a low of around 40. Tomorrow will be partly sunny and mild with a high of around 70. Currently, it is 60 degrees. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We now take you to the Little Theater in the Pew Fine Arts Center in Grove City College for Sid Sustain, live in concert. 
Good evening, Sid fans. From the Little Theater and the Pew Fine Arts Center, we bring you Grove City's premier rock band, Sid Sustain, coming back from a concert at the Electric Banana. Sid Sustain leads off tonight with Photograph. concert to bring you a special bulletin from the AP Wire. At half past four central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Grove City has confirmed Farrell's observation and described the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return to the music of Sid Sustain, playing for you in the little theater in the Pew Fine Arts Center, situated in Grove City College. Continuing with Paranoise About Fuzzies on My Sweater, here's Sid Sustain. gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Weather Service has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with the noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the observatory in Grove City. Until then, we return you to the SID concert.
We are ready now to take you to the observatory in Grove City. Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to the observatory. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the observatory. I'm standing in a large, semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The sound you hear is the humming of the computer. Pro Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through the eyepiece. I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides the ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by computer or other communications. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin the interview? At any time, Mr. Phillips. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disk swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips, although that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, those stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? <laughs> well, based on the findings of the Viking landings, I should say that the chances of life are about <laughs> a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? <coughs> uh, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. Well, that seems a safe enough distance. Thank you. J just a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While he reads it, let me remind you that we are speaking to you from the observatory in Grove City, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Pearson. One moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message, which he has just received. Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mr. Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Rochester Museum and Science Center, Rochester, New York. Quote, 5.40 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earth earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Grove City. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. You're welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past 10 minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory in Grove City, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We now return you to our studio. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the latest bulletin from the AP Wire. Toronto, Canada. Professor Morse of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 5.30 p.m. and 5.40 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. 
Now, nearer home, comes a special announcement from Butler, Pennsylvania. It is reported that at 5.45 p.m., a huge flaming object believed to be a meteorite fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Slippery Rock, eight miles from Grove City. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Erie. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Mr. Phillips, give you a word description as soon as he can reach there from Grove City. In the meantime, we take you back to the SID concert. All right, let's do it. following the rules. He looked real funny and we looked in his eyes. We followed this cat like we were hypnotized. He weaved all over and in and around. We followed him out to the other side of town. He smiled, we laughed, but he quoted Blake. We all knew. We take you now to Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again at the Willard Farm, Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. Professor Pearson and I made the nine miles from Grove City in ten minutes. Well, I, I hardly know where to begin. To paint for you a word picture of the strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian Nights. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I, I guess that's it. Yes, that's the thing directly in front of me, half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree it must have struck on the way down. What I can see of the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. It has a diameter of, um... What, what would you say, Professor Pearson? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is... Well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. Curious spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Would you mind standing to one side, please? One side there. Or one side. While, while the police are pushing the crowd back, Here's Mrs. Wilmoth, owner of the farm here. She may have some interesting facts to add. Mrs. Wilmoth, will you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mrs. Wilmoth. I was listening to the radio. Closer and louder, please. What? Louder, please, and closer. Yes, sir. While I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing, that professor fellow was talking about Mars. So I was half dozing and half... Yes, Mrs. Wilmoth. Then what happened? As I was saying, I was listening to the radio kind of halfway. Yes, Mrs. Wilmoth. Then you saw something? Not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound. Like this. Kind of like a 4th of July rocket. Then what? Turned my head out the window and would have swore I was to sleep and dream. Yes? I seen a kind of greenish street, and then, zingo, something smacked the ground, knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mrs. Wilmoth? Well, I, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I, I was kind of riled. Thank you, Mrs. Wilmoth. Want Thank me to you. tell you some more? No, no, that, that's quite all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mrs. Wilmoth, owner of the farm where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in the field in back of us. 
Police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Their half-lights throw an enormous spot on the pit where the object's half-buried. Some of the more daring souls are venturing near the edge. The silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with the policeman. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen. Do you hear it? It's, it's a hu curious humming sound that seems to come from the inside of the object. I'll move the microphone nearer. Here. Now we're not more than 25 feet away. Can you hear it now? Oh, Professor Pearson. Uh, yes, Mr. Phillips. Can you tell us the meaning of that humming noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? Uh, I don't know what to think. The metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. A friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth, and as you can see, of cylindrical shape. Just, just, just a minute, something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is unbelievable. The end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw. The thing must be hollow. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute, someone's crawling out of the hollow top. Someone are... Luminous discs. Are they eyes? It might be a face. It might be... Holy cow! Something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. That's another one. And, and another. They look like tentacles to me. There. I can see the thing's body. It's large as a bear and it glistens like wet leather. Oh, but that face. It's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. The, the eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate. The monster, whatever it is, can hardly move. It seems to be down by possibly gravity or something. This is the most extraordinary experience. I, I can't find words. I'm pulling this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I've taken a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll, I'll be back in a minute. bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Slippery Rock. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, here I am back of a stone wall that adjoins Mrs. Wilmoth's garden. From, from here I can get a, a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk. As long as I can see. Most state police have arrived. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain is conferring with someone. We can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now they've parted. The professor moves around one side, studying the object, while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I, I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. A flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, that anything means... Wait! Something's happening. A, a humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against the mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and shooting right at the exact same man. It's turning him head off. Good Lord, they're turning into flame. Now the, now the whole field's caught fire. The woods, the barns, the gas tanks, the automobiles. It's spreading everywhere. It's coming this way. About, about 20 yards to my right.
Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Slippery Rock. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from the California Astronomical Society, San Diego, expressing the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. You're listening to the classic radio theater adaptation for the Grove City area of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief public service announcement. We continue with the classic radio theater adaptation of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been handed a message that came in from Slippery Rock by telephone. Just a moment. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Slippery Rock, their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you will hear will be that of Colonel Montgomery Smith, commander of the National Guard at Butler, Pennsylvania. I've been requested by the governor of Pennsylvania to place the counties of Mercer, Crawford, Erie, Ashtabula, as far west as Youngstown, and east of Clary, and under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of National Guard are proceeding from Butler to Slippery Rock and will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to Colonel Smith commanding the National Guard at Butler. In the meantime, further details of this catastrophe at Slippery Rock are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. Combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We've been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Slippery Rock, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to the just one moment, please. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located in a farmhouse near Slippery Rock where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you will hear will be that of, of Professor Pearson, Brought to you by Direct Wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Slippery Rock, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture a conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It is my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat, they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That is my conjecture on the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here's a bulletin from Butler. It is, it is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Butler hospital. Now here's another bulletin from Pittsburgh. 
Office of the Director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia stationed outside of Slippery Rock. Here's a bulletin from the state police, Grove City. The fires at Slippery Rock and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit and no sign of life is appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a representative from WSAJ with a special announcement from Martin Christoffel, Student General Manager. And now I have a message from Martin Christoffel. It is as follows, quote, We have received a request from the National Guards at Butler to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation and believing that radio has a definite responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the National Guard at Butler. We take you now to the field headquarters of the National Guard near Slippery Rock. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps, attached to the National Guard, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Slippery Rock. The situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. <clears throat> the cylindrical object which lies in a pit directly below our position is surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry without, without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if ever such a cause existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above their pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all the reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. A and anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their khaki uniforms crossing back and crossing back and forth in front of the lights. It looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Millstone River. Probably fire stirred by campers. Well, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it will all be over. Now, wait a minute. I, I see something on top of the cylinder. No, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are closing on, on the edge of the Wilmoth farm. 7,000 armed men going after an old metal tube. Wait, that, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal. Kind of a shield like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. Why, it's standing on legs, actually rearing up on sort of a metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees, the searchlights are on it. Uh, hold on! Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Pennsylvania farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Slippery Rock has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Slippery Rock to Butler have been crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the northwestern section of Pennsylvania and has effectively cut off the corner of the state. Communication lines are down from Pittsburgh to Erie. Railroad tracks are torn and service between Pittsburgh and Youngstown discontinued except routing some of the trains through East Liverpool. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. 
Police and Army Reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Harrisville, Butler, and Newcastle. It is estimated to twice their normal population. At this time, martial law prevails throughout western Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio. We take you now to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need for calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront the des destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You've just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We are informed that the western portion of Pennsylvania is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here's a special bulletin from Pittsburgh. Cables received from English, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voice opinion that enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. Attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Grove City, who, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible from treetops moving no north towards Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. Heat ray has not been in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crunch resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here's a bulletin from Indiana, Pennsylvania. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder, similar to the first, embedded in the Great Swamp, 20 miles south of Morristown. U.S. Army field pieces are proceeding from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, to blow up the second invading unit before the cylinder can be opened and the fighting machine rigged. They are taking up position near the State College. Another bulletin from Langhamfield, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines, now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies just north of Pittsburgh. Machines also sighted by a telephone operator southwest of Pittsburgh near Wheeling, West Virginia. A special bulletin from Pittsburgh. Fleet of Army bombers carrying heavy explosives are flying north in pursuit of the enemy. Scouting planes are acting as guides, and they keep the enemy in sight. Uh, just a moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, We've run special wires to the artillery line in adjacent towns to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery at the second, 22nd Field Artillery, located near Lake Arthur. Range, 32 meters. 32 meters. Projection, 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire!
140 yards to the right, sir. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire! I hit, sir. We got the tripod of one of them. They've stopped. The others are trying to repair it. Uh, quick, get the range. Shift to, shift to 30 meters. 30 meters. The projection, 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire! Can't see the shell end, sir. They're letting off the smoke. What is it? A black smoke, sir. <coughs> moving this way. Lying close to the ground. It's moving fast. Put on gas masks. Got ready to fire. Shift to 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire! Still can't see, sir. <coughs> it's coming near. Get the range. <coughs> 23 meters. 23 meters. 23 meters. <coughs> Projection, 22 <laughs> degrees. 22 degrees. <laughs> 843 off Jamestown, New York. Lieutenant Boat commanding eight bombers, reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. This is Boat reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight, reinforced by three machines from the Indiana Cylinder. Six altogether. One machine partially crippled, believed hit by a shell from an army gun by Lake Arthur. Guns now appear silent, a heavy black fog hanging close to the earth, of extreme density, nature unknown, no sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns west, crossing Allegheny River. Another straddles turnpike. Evident objective, Pittsburgh. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together now, we're ready to attack. Planes circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred yards. Four hundred. Two hundred. There they go, the giant arm raised. Green flash, they're spraying us with flame. Two thousand feet, engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. Eight. Jamestown, New York, calling Langham Field. This is Jamestown, New York, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight Army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Lake Arthur. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction this is Newcastle, Pennsylvania. This is Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Warning, poisonous black smoke sm pouring in from Lake Arthur. Gas masks useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use I-79, 80, and 76. Avoid congested areas. Smoke <coughs> now <coughs> spreading over. 2X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling 8X3R. Come in, please. This is 8X3R coming back at 2X2L. How's reception? How's reception? Okay, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? 
Where are you? I'm speaking from the roof of Rockwell Grove City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as the Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, 6,000 people have moved out along the roads to the north. Route 173 is still kept open for motor traffic. All communication with Pittsburgh closed 10 minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army's been wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be our last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding a service near us, in the chapel. Streets are all jammed. Noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute. Enemy now in sight, behind the water tower. Five great machines. The first one is crossing the ion fields. I can see it from here. A bulletin's been handed to me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside Rochester, one in Chicago, St. Louis seem to be timed in space. Now the first machine has reached a campus. He stands watching, looking over the city. His steel cowlish head is even with the water tower. He waits for the others, and they rise like a line of new towers on the city's east side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. The smoke is pouring out. Black smoke. Uh, drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. The, they're running towards the airport. Thousands of them. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached us. <coughs> People trying to run away <coughs> from it. But it's no use. <coughs> they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's coming. Alumni Hall. A hundred yards. <coughs> it's fifty feet. <coughs> 2X2L, calling CQ. 2X2L, calling CQ. 2X2L, calling CQ. Grove City. Isn't there anyone that's on the air? Isn't there anyone? 2X2L. to the classic radio theater adaptation for the Grove City area of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief public service announcement. We continue now with War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. I put down these notes on papers. I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth. I have been hiding in this empty house near Slippery Rock, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present furtive existence. The lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I look down at my blackened hands, my torn shoes, my tattered clothes, and I try to connect them with a professor who lives at Grove City and who on the night of April 26th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my, my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What, what day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? 
in writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars. But to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. I find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. I keep watch at the window. From time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil. But at length, there is a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam, as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner, as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. It's morning. Sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas has lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm has passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here and there, a wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. I push on south. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them and I keep a careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear above the trees, I am ready to fling myself flat on the earth. I come to his sheets. <laughs> it's open. I fill my pockets. I, I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague southerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature, a small red squirrel in a pine tree. I stare at him in wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion, the joy of finding another living being. I push on south. I find dead cows in a brackish field, beyond the charred ruins of a dairy. The silo remains standing guard over the waste, charred ruins of the, of the dairy. Stride the silo, purchase a, w a weather vane. The arrow points south. Next day I come to a city vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off, as if a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his hand. I reached the outskirts. I found Pittsburgh undemolished, but humbled by some wind of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step toward it, and it rose up and became a man, a man armed with a large knife. Where did you come from? I come from many places. A long time ago from Grove City. Grove City, huh? That That's near Slippery Rock. Yes. Slippery Rock. <laughs> There's no food here. This, this is my country. All this end of town, down to the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? Uh, I don't know. I guess I'm looking for... for people. What was that? Did, did you hear something just then? Only a bird. A live bird. You get to know the birds have shadows these days. Say, we're in the open here. Let's go on to this doorway and talk. Have you seen any Martians? They've gone over to Youngstown. At night, the sky is alive with their lights, just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. 
Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I believe they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. And it's all over with, with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I, just two of us left. They've got themselves in solid. They wreck the greatest country in the world. Those green stars. They're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in uniform. <laughs> What's left of it? I was in the National Guard. <laughs> That's good. Well, it wasn't any, mo any war, more than it was a war between men and ants. And we're eatable ants. Well, I found that out. Well, what will they do to us? I thought it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. The Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep doing that. They'll be catching us systematically, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have enough sense to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of our rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities. Nations. Civilization. Progress. But if that's so, what is there to live for? There won't be any more concerts for a million years or so. And no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life! That's what! I want to live! And so do you! We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught, either, and tamed, and fattened, and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I, I got a plan. We men, as men, are finished. We don't know enough. We've got to learn plenty before we've got a chance. We've got to live and keep free while we learn. I've got it all thought out, see? Tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that were made for wild beasts, and that's what it's got to be. That's why I watched you. All these little office workers that used to live in these houses, <laughs> they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff to them. They just used to run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running wild to catch their commuters' trains in the morning for fear they'd get canned if they didn't. Running back at night, afraid they won't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. And on Sunday, worried about the hereafter. The Martians will be a godsend for those guys. Nice, roomy cages, good food, careful breeding, no worries. After a week or so of chasing them out on empty fields, em empty stomachs, they'll, be, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? You bet I have, and that isn't all. Martians will make pets of some of them, train them to do tricks. <laughs> who knows? Get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. And some, maybe, they'll train to hunt us. It's impossible. No human being. Yes, they will. There's men who will do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me... In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the Earth? I've got it all figured out. We'll, we'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under Youngstown, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones are big enough for anybody. There's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin to see, eh? We'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weak ones. That rubbish. Out. And you meant me to go? Well, I gave you a chance, didn't I? <laughs> we won't quarrel about that. Go on. And, and we've got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? And get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We'll raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. It may not be so much we'll have to learn before... Just, just imagine this. 
four or five of their own mach fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays left and right. Not a Martian in them. Huh. Not a Martian in them. But men. Men who've learned the way how. It, it may even be in our own time. Gee. Imagine having one of those lovely things with the heat wave riding free. We turned on the Martians. We turned on men. We bring everybody down to their knees. That's your plan. You and me and a few more of us. We own the world. I see. Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Goodbye, stranger. After parting with the artillerymen, I came at last to the Fort Pitt Tunnel. I entered that silent tube, anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Allegheny. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up I-376. I reached Smithfield, where, again, the black powder and several bodies, and an evil, ominous smell coming from the gratings of the cellars and some of the houses. I wandered up through the strip district. I stood alone on Gateway Plaza. I caught sight of a lean dog running down Liberty Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. He made a wide circle around me, as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. I walked up Penn Avenue in the direction of the strange powder, past silent shop windows displaying their mute wares to the empty sidewalks, past the hind saw, silent and dark. Near Oakland, I noticed models of 1987 sports cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. From over the top of the Cathedral of Learning, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky. I hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine standing somewhere in the CMU campus, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I rushed recklessly across the campus into Shenley Park. I climbed a small hill above the pond at Forbes Avenue. From there I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, nineteen of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground, and before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians, with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. The slain, after all man's defenses failed, by the humblest thing that God in his wisdom put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all of deep space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our own minute sphere. Now, we see further. Dim and wonderful as the vision I have conjured in my mind, of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastness of sidereal space. But that is only a remote dream. It may be that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them, and not to us, as the future ordained, perhaps. Strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study at Grove City, writing down this last chapter of the record begun at a deserted farm in Slippery Rock. Strange to see from my window the college spires dim and blue through an April haze. 
Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the quad where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch sightseers enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange. When I recall the time when I first saw it, bright and clean cut, hard and silent, under the dawn of that last great day. This has been a classic radio theater production of the special adaptation of War of the, well War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Larry Bowald as Professor Pearson, Chris Fisher as Phillips, Darla Vornberger as announcer two, Cheryl Sheely as Mrs. Wilmoth, Mark Harrison as announcer one, Bill Coach as Colonel Smith and the officer, Art Wilson as a messenger, and Donna Kozik as the crowd. War of the Worlds was directed and technically directed by Mark Harrison, with technical assistance by Martin Christoffel, P.D. Gregg, Todd Coe, Kathy Malcolm, and Tim Moore. Public relations was organized by Kathy Malcolm and Todd Coe. Many thanks go to Dr. Dixon, Miss Snyder, Mr. Smiley, Sid Sustain, and the WSAJ staff for all their help and cooperation in the making of this production. They were watching. They were waiting. Then they came, and they were conquered, perhaps. For more information, please visit sfpodcastnetwork.com on the interweb. Thank you for listening, and farewell from all of us at Decawatt Playhouse. <laughs>